I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. I'll admit, I had not heard of the World Doctors' Orchestra before, so when the invitation popped into my inbox to collaborate with them, I was somewhat intrigued. And as I began researching this orchestra, I realised I had been ignorant to something really unbelievably special. Established in 2008 as a non-profit organisation, the WDO is made up entirely of physicians. In fact, 1,500 physicians from around 60 nations are registered with the WDO. But when on earth would they have the time to come together as an orchestra and perform some of the most iconic repertoire to an extraordinarily high level? Well, since their emergence, they've performed in many of the major concert venues all over the world to amazing responses, not to mention donating a huge amount to medical causes. So I'm absolutely over the moon to have not one, not two, but three doctors today, which is a miracle considering they're all on the front line of duty, especially when we consider the challenging times we're currently navigating through. Thank you all very, very much for giving your time. I'd love for you to introduce yourselves and to describe the area of medicine that you're involved with. So, Romani, would you like to tell us a little about yourself, please? Hi, Evelyn. Thank you so much for inviting us to be on your podcast today. I'm Romini Rougere. I'm a consultant neuroanaesthetist working at St George's, which is a big London teaching hospital. I love my job, even working through these difficult, challenging COVID times, but my passion is music. I play in the World Doctors' Orchestra, performing charity concerts all over the world. I joined this orchestra around 12 years ago, and I have performed in about 46 benefit concerts in 26 countries and so far we have raised over a million euros for worldwide medical charities. Fantastic Romani, thank you very much and Eugene. Hi there, Um, so I'm Eugene, I'm a GP, I work predominantly privately, Um, I've been a GP now for 17 years and a qualified doctor for the last 23 um, during COVID, I actually went back to the NHS. I left the NHS about three years ago. I went back um, answering the government's call for doctors to return to the NHS at the beginning of lockdown and spent six months working back in the NHS, which was really, really interesting and very, very fulfilling. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I've now gone back to my usual clinics, which I run. I'm in charge of three separate GP clinics. Thank you, Eugene. Tim. Hello, uh, I am an ophthalmologist, so I um, am training to be an ophthalmologist and we specialise in uh, eye surgery uh, and diseases of the eye. So I'm sort of midway through my training currently um, doing research um, into glaucoma. Thank you very much indeed. So three very different areas of medicine and I'm just curious to know, perhaps a fun question first of all, is with the wide medical expertise within the World Doctors' Orchestra, is there a certain trait whereby there are 
more musicians, let's say, um, who are brain surgeons or um, who are anaesthetists or GPs and so on? Is there something there that you can detect? Or heart surgeons? Tim? (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) interesting question. So somewhere we do have that data that we've collected about what specialty everyone does. But it's actually, once we all get together and the stethoscopes are off, it really is very difficult to tell who does what. And, um, and to, my, to my eye, there's no particular trend with regards to specialties, actually. I don't know what the other guys think. Um, I think it's really what we all get out of participating in music as human beings is what we have in common. And actually, um, the, the specialty specific skills that we use in our day job are perhaps uh, less... Uh, relevant to the fact that we've chosen to do music in our spare time. And that's really interesting. Yes, Romani, yes. No, I would just like to say that a few years ago, I did a a survey in the orchestra to find out about um, the different specialties of the players, but it was mainly to find out whether whether more musician doctors were actually left-handed. So that's what I was looking at. Um, But we found that there are a lot of anaesthetists, a lot of psychiatrists, obviously a lot of general practitioners because they make up most of the doctors who come out of medical school. But, yeah, I think a lot of surgeons, there are a lot of psychiatrists across the countries, so they also make up um, a a high number. But I I think it's spread fairly evenly. Um, Obviously, we need quite a lot of spare time to practice and to actually get away to perform in the concerts because it's t- quite time consuming with our time off and holidays mm. um, but I think it's it's spread spread evenly but I think the it has we did show that there are a lot of left-handed musicians who are doctors how interesting so what's the conclusion there I mean why might that be I think it's to do with the sides of the brain um, I think People who are left-handed have perhaps left and right sides are both equally well formed. Yeah, and it's interesting. <laughs> I'm left-handed. Can you can you guess I'm left-handed? <laughs> <laughs> but w- which instrument do you play, though, Romani? Can I can I? I play viola. It's the most beautiful <laughs> instrument I in love, the orchestra. <laughs> I love the viola. I absolutely love the viola. But it's interesting because. You know, I'm a percussion player, and of course we have a, a, a saying whereby um, you're only as strong as your weaker limb, or you're only as strong as your weaker hand, basically, because you're not really meant to know whether a percussion player is right-handed or left-handed, because you want all of your limbs to be equally strong. So it's uh, it's interesting what what you're saying there. But who might be happier, musicians or medics? <laughs> wow, that's a yeah. question. I think, um, I think, as medics, we all have uh, a quite a stressful job. I think we have a baseline level of stress, um, and I'm not saying that other people in their professions obviously don't have stress. We all have stress, but we have this particular type of stress that maybe follows you home, but has the potential to stop you sleeping at night. Those kinds of things, um, and I think. Generally, you have to find a way to deal with that, with that, and uh, have an off switch. And I think the the doctors that choose to do medicine have found that perfect off switch where we can um, sort of relieve that stress by really going into somebody else's world, a different sound world, a different uh, maybe a different country, 
um, and really uh, just totally exploring this world of music that is completely different to what we do in our day jobs. And I think personally that really helps me just turn off that, that stress for just a moment um, and, and almost refreshes you to go back to it again afterwards once you stop playing. It's really interesting, actually. And uh, I mean, there's no question that in a way you're all in that profession that can make such a difference to so many aspects of an individual's life. And so the stress is, is something that I personally can't imagine, really. And, and I've often wondered, well, you know, a lot of musicians have, um, you know, we, we find that there's a lot of musicians who perhaps originally studied science, for example, various aspects of science, but then have, um, or mathematics, but then uh, have decided to choose music as their profession. But I can't imagine many people who study music as their profession to then go into medicine, whereas we can sometimes see it the other way around. Do you feel that's a possibility or, or not? Well, no, we do have a, a, a few, a few um, players in the orchestra started off as professional musicians and then they've gone into medicine later in life. I ah. think they find professionally, as I mean, musicians, I think the salary and the job security, is, is, it's less secure, isn't it? Ah, that's, that's very interesting. And I'd just like to, uh, you know, go back to the emergence of the World Doctors' Orchestra because you have a very, very special man as the conductor of the orchestra, Professor Stefan Village. And but can you just tell me the whole idea of the orchestra, how it was funded, the reason um, that, that this, this all happened? Because it's quite an extraordinary thing considering it's a global organisation. Eugene, yes. Yeah, so um, I think Romany, I think, played in the very first concert. I didn't. I played in the second concert. And I do remember Stefan, the conductor, telling a story about how um, he wanted to develop some kind of um, uh, international group of doctor musicians and assumed that there was already a world doctor's orchestra. But when he researched it, there wasn't one. So he decided... Um, why not? Because there was already uh, the Australian Doctors Orchestra, there was the European Doctors Orchestra, um, and I think there were various kind of um, sort of countrywide orchestras across the world, but there wasn't a, a overarching international World Doctors Orchestra. And so that's what led him to, to develop the organisation. And I think for the first concert, he literally had no idea what he was letting himself in for. He had no idea of the calibre of the musicians that would turn up, what the performances would be like. So I think for him, it was a bit nerve wracking, the very first performance. Um, but it's, it's kind of grown and blossomed from there, really. And it was always set up to be a charitable organisation so that the focus is not only drawing doctor musicians from all over the world to come together as an orchestra but also to raise money for 
charitable causes. Um, and so that really was the, the foundation of the orchestra back in 2008. That's amazing. And so, I mean, when you're thinking about such a large group of people, because there's also singers, there's a choir as well that you, you engage with and you try to put on, well, not try, you do put on enormous productions. I mean, it's quite quite extraordinary. So logistically, how does this all happen? I mean, getting all the people in one place, you know, how many rehearsals do you have? Who decides on the repertoire? Just, just that, the, I, I mean, I know what it's like just for little old me here, you know, getting me transported from A to B. But, you know, this size of organisation is absolutely mind-blowing. Tim? It's so oh, you, no, okay. <laughs> or Eugene, no, no. Right. <laughs> We're all so polite. <laughs> um, so we've got first-hand experience. So, mm-hmm. in fact, a year ago today, we had um, planned um, down to the last uh, second a, a course for the whole orchestra in London and Cardiff. Um, and you had very, uh, we were delighted that you had very kindly offered to play with us. Um, and unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, that's had to be postponed um, but it really was, as you say, quite a feat. So we had about three years of meetings mm. um, and really just uh, one year was just agreeing on the repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> Once the arguments were over, <laughs> we then um, had to get down to the finer details of things like booking coaches, booking venues, making artwork, um, uh, just so many different types of uh, obstacles that we hadn't really considered popped up um, so we had a really strong committee of four uh, as oh, well as the, the help of a permanent office in Berlin um, that are well experienced in, in all the other courses that are organized around the world. Mm. Uh, Eugene? Do you... Yeah I was just going to say so each project um, has a local organizing committee based in whichever country um, there is um, the orchestral management is based in Berlin uh, and they have various models about how to organise projects. So the local organising committee can take complete control, um, both of finances and organisation. Um, but there is another model whereby Berlin can organise the finances and um, the local committee does the uh, organisation. So I think from our experience, it's... Um, uh, we're taking total control over it. Um, and yes, it logistically is difficult because uh, not only are we all, you know, working doctors that then have to rehearse together and put on a concert, but in terms of the organisation as well, we're still working full time, most of us. And therefore, we have to kind of carve out time within our uh, usual working week in order to kind of do things, make phone calls, send emails, that sort of thing. So it, it it is time consuming, but the end result is definitely worth it. And it's very interesting that you say that because, um, and and it's so it's so extraordinary when you you're trying to think of the the extraordinary work that you do, and basically take on more or less a, another full time job. And I know that in the music establishments and the conservatoires and and various institutions that they're really trying to encourage music students to have 
projects during their training to put on a concert, to know what it feels like to organise a concert or to create various projects out in the community um, because the emphasis is very much on uh, improving as an instrumentalist as opposed to preparing yourself for the, the nitty-gritty of what it's like when you when you graduate and, and so much of that time is spent on the administration. Um, but if it makes you feel any better, and, and Tim, you've been working very closely um, with, with us here, and it's just been an absolute pleasure because we always know we're going to get a response from you and fairly quickly as well. And, you know, that just sometimes doesn't happen. And we've often got to chase and chase and chase and chase. So really 10 out of 10 for that because it, it really does save an awful lot of time, even if it feels as though you're doing a lot of things. But that openness and communication is really important. Romani, yes. <laughs> I was going to say, I think there are a lot of transferable skills here from medicine, particularly being an anaesthetist and at the front line. Um, I'm very impatient if I need an answer. I can't understand why people don't reply straight away. I'm used to having things exactly when I want them um, immediately at work. Um, and in my job, I can't afford to wait. Um, and I'm sure maybe in the eye surgery, but um, mm. yeah, in, in, but mm. I just, yeah, it's that's such why. An, uh, it's such an important point that actually, because a lot of the communication done, you know, whether it's through social media or, or email or whatever, there's an awful lot of time wasting, you know, and although we want things really quickly, there's an awful lot of stuff that you have to get through before you, you get directly there. So this is maybe something that we musicians can definitely learn from, uh, from you all, is just to be really direct and really clear as, as regards to, to what, what we're asking. Um, because one of my questions was, well, how do you balance being a medic and a musician and an organiser? So I think you've, you've all explained that really, really well. But I mean, obviously, you know, since March 2020, the world has become a very different landscape. And I'm just wondering if each of you could describe how this has changed for you, you know, in general terms, medically, but also as a musician, because of course our wonderful project together has had to be postponed from this year to hopefully next year, and there's still uncertainty. But you know, as musicians, do you still feel inspired to pick your instrument up? You know, because I found that my focus as regards to well, which pieces of music should I be practicing for and what should I be practicing? I don't know if I'm going to be playing that piece and I don't know when I'm going to be playing it and so on. And But also medically, because I think musically it may have sort of dampened down a bit, but medically you just must be on absolute alert all the time. Eugene? So, yeah, I've done a bit of thinking about this, actually. So medically speaking, certainly in general practice, one of the big shifts that we've had since the uh, lockdown in March was about how we actually consult with our patients so, you know, in general practice, we're used to everyone coming in and having face-to-face -face communication. That's, that's, that's how general practice works. And suddenly we were having to do telephone consultations or video consultations, and the, it just completely changed how general practice worked. I mean, the, the general practices were all open, um, but it, we just had to completely change. And so that, for us 
increased uh, level of um, uncertainty in terms of dealing with our patients. And by that, what I mean is when you see someone face to face, you're getting so many additional kind of cues uh, when they're telling you about what's wrong with them um, that you don't get necessarily when you're on the phone to them or even on a video. So we've um, just had to um, sort of up our game, as it were, in terms of making certain that we don't miss things. Um, we have to probe maybe a little bit more verbally than we would normally do. So that has changed. So that has led to an increased level of anxiety, certainly amongst GPs in terms of we don't want to miss anything. Um, and so um, for me personally, that just meant that it was taking me slightly longer to actually consult with my patients, mm-hmm. um, which actually... Um, when it was when you're confronted with a telephone list of 20 patients that you've got to call they're all allotted certain time slots Um, and what I found was that uh, it was less pressure on me if I didn't stick to those time slots because I just thought actually I will take as long as it takes Um, and I haven't got seven people sat in my waiting area waiting for me to come out and every time I'm walking out they're kind of like looking at me in a very cross manner Um, so so in a way that that was a little bit more comforting um to answer the music thing that's been slightly different um so uh i play in quite a lot of amateur orchestras so uh when i'm playing in all my orchestras i'm often out most evenings so certainly monday to thursday i'll be out and sometimes on a sunday as well and uh needless to say all of that stopped and so as um I think my personality is such that I need deadlines to work to. Uh, I work well under pressure. Um, So if I have a concert coming up, then I practice and I practice very, very hard. Um, If I don't have a concert coming up and I don't need to practice, then the motivation is not quite so so uh, at the front forefront of my brain. The other thing which is probably worth saying is that... um, uh, It's been a bit strange sort of being at home because um, I've had to work... When I am at home, I'm working remotely, so I'm just as busy when I'm at home. It's not like I can do five minutes here and then do half an hour of practice. So my working day is still fairly busy, um, which then means I've only got the evenings to practice. And I live in a block of flats, so it's a bit difficult. I've always had this thing about not playing and making noise at night because it annoys the neighbours. So it's been a bit more difficult because most of my instruments are acoustic instruments that you can't really mute very well. So um, so, um, I've done less playing, certainly. It's so, so fascinating that. And I I completely understand what you're saying about having a, a specific project that makes you much more focused and and I think this has definitely been a a large talking point a major talking point within the music industry whereby you know concerts have have been cancelled or postponed and and just people really don't know what to do and so they're looking deep as regards to the other skills that they have and looking deep as regards to well what is it about being a musician that keeps them motivated that keeps them curious and is it simply the playing of their instrument and obviously sharing that with people and and you know performing with other people and so on but what are the other skills that they can perhaps develop um that this whole uh covid situation has put upon us is that we're having to look very much deeply within ourselves and and think well what other things um can keep me buoyant here and and curious and 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 you know keep me wanting to 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 push the boundaries and 
Um, and I think for a lot of people, they felt almost hostage to the fact that playing the instrument actually isn't enough. You know, it can so easily just uh, turn on its head in, a, in an unexpected way. Eugene, which instrument do you play, may I ask? <laughs> um, yeah, you may. Um, so I, I play a few instruments, but in the orchestra I started off as a bassoonist and contrabassoonist, and then I switched to double bass, um, I don't know, about three years ago, I think. So I'm, I'm now pretty much double bass. Goodness me, that's that's uh, quite a change. <laughs> I, that's um, quite quite different. So it's pretty amazing that you've, you know, got the... I suppose the guts to think, well, you know what, I'm just going to change my instrument. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a strange story. So when I was growing up, um, uh, we were denied the opportunity to, to learn stringed instruments, essentially, because uh, where I grew up was a very um, sort of white, middle class uh, area. And my older brother was put forward to learn the violin. And they just said that, you know, black people have no aptitude for classical music. So therefore, um, so he was the year above me at school. So, which was probably just as well because he had no musical talent whatsoever. However, when it came to me, uh, my parents didn't want to go through that again as a family. So I just wasn't put forward. Um, and um, so I just kind of went along my way. But uh, back then we all learnt recorder at school. So I was fairly gifted at recorder and just played, played, played. And um, and then eventually persuaded my parents to let me learn the clarinet, but they refused to let me learn in school because of what had happened. So I went and got private lessons and then, cut a long story short, I switched to bassoon. But I think in my heart, I always wanted to learn a stringed instrument. So I decided in my 30s I was going to play the cello. So I, I studied the cello, got lessons, worked my way up to grade eight. Um, and then... For some reason, well, it was actually prompted by um, uh, me losing my father, actually. And I went to a friend's concert um, and it was it was a really good concert. Apart from there was no double bass section because they just couldn't get a double bass. And I kept thinking, well, I'd play the cello. The double bass can't be that hard. I'll give it a go. So it kind of just went from there. That was about five years ago. So and now um, I absolutely love playing the double bass. I just think it's the foundation of the orchestra. Every single orchestra it is the most amazing instrument. So I absolutely love it. It is an amazing instrument. And I remember several years ago, I, I had to do a charitable uh, well, it, it, it was a project um, that the East of England, East Anglia Children's Hospices had put on, and they basically asked musicians within the Cambridgeshire area if they could choose one instrument that they've always been intrigued to, to play, uh, but they had never played before, and I chose double bass. <laughs> and we were meant to do grade one associated board on, on the particular instrument, and it was up to each individual to find a teacher or a multitude of teachers to get them through this grade one. And I remember uh, in those days, I happened to be, you know, traveling an awful lot. And I was with different orchestras and I ended up with the Strasbourg Orchestra in France. And I went to the double bass section and I said, oh, please, could possibly one of you just give me five minutes of your time to just give me a little double bass lesson? And this wonderful man said, oh, the double bass, that's the mother of all instruments. <laughs> and I think he's right there because, of course, you know, it's the physical feel of the bass is just quite extraordinary. 
And interestingly, I was having a conversation the other day with Chichi Nwanoku, who is a wonderful double bassist. And, uh, and you know, she was basically mentioning a similar story to yourself. I mean, she actually was an extremely talented athlete, mm. uh, a sprinter, and she was going to do that originally, but um, she always had a love of music. But of course, for a woman to be a double bass player and a black lady to be a double bass player was, was something, you know, really, really unusual. And she has just, you know, been such an extraordinary force, not just in the music world, but in society as a whole and done amazing things. And of course, with the foundation um, or the, the founding of the Chinnake Foundation. And, uh, and she and I are giving the first ever double concerto for double bass and percussion, hopefully in February, if, <laughs> if we get that far. So um, I'll be sure to bring the score with me when we meet uh, with, the, with the World Doctors Orchestra. <laughs> so I have a great fondness with the, the double bass for sure. <laughs> but actually, I wonder, you know, why, why does music have such an impact on our emotions what is it about music sound perhaps more than art visual art perhaps more than dance um, what is it about music that just seems to build bridges yes yes Eugene it's, it's a really interesting question um, I don't know the answer um, but what I would say, personally speaking, um, there is something about music that you feel, I suppose, in your soul, really. Um, you just, um, I mean, you can hear it, you can feel it, but it just does something to you inside. Whether you like it or hate it, it seems to evoke something internally within us as human beings. And um, there, in a way that maybe, you know... Um, uh, watching a dance um, might not invoke quite the same emotion. And so um, I do think there is something about music that reaches us um, much more deeply than just, um, you know, just having a conversation or, or something like that. There is something about it. I don't know uh, biologically why that is, um, but um, it definitely provokes emotions and like I said I mean uh, classical music I have lots of friends that are not particularly into classical music but yet um, they can still listen to a piece and in a way I'm slightly jealous of them when they hear a piece that I might know really well as a as a musician but they've never heard before and just watching what it means to them or what they feel is 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 interesting so mm. but yes yes Tim um so I think, as uh, Eugene actually touched on it just there, I think I think we can build bridges with music through conversation, actually. Um, if you're not talking to each other, you're not finding any common ground, you're not uh, starting a dialogue. And I think both in music and in the non-musical world where you have to negotiate in, in situations, it's all about that two-way conversation. I think that conversation in the art form of music is much more obvious and much more accessible than maybe it is in in, in fine art or all the different types of, of art so you're playing your part and then you're listening and you're using those skills to listen to what other people are saying 
and through their music that may not have the vocabulary or the the words to express what they're feeling but it's a it's often the words you choose can be judged and often people I, I certainly feel much uh, I find it much more difficult to communicate with words than I can with music and I think uh, if, once we can communicate with sound and, and cut words out of the equation um, I think it's much easier to build uh, bridges that way and I think that's a skill that uh, doctors both have to learn and musicians actually have you were saying um, earlier about musicians trying to think of what transferable skills they have in the real world and actually I think listening is the key one there um, where they are able to listen and pick out what is important in a phrase or in a thick orchestral texture and I guess that's what we have to do regularly when we're speaking to patients you have to work out what is important what is not as important and really take the lead from the patient to lead you to the right diagnosis or to say the right thing that provides them with with comfort um, so I think it's 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 about uh, having a conversation and the, the skill of listening um, to build those bridges mm, thank you Tim Romani I was just going to say that music has a lot of healing properties and mm. so it's very useful for many of our patients particularly patients in vegetative states when we put um, headphones on them um, and measure the brain waves, the EEGs, you can see that it's soothing and there's often a response to the music. And there have been lots of studies done with children playing Mozart, even to babies, children in the womb. Um, they can definitely feel something there. So I think that makes music very special. Mm, and of course, music and dementia patients as well, which is a, an enormous area of work for musicians, actually, the the importance of that and uh, wonderful organisations such as um, music in hospitals and care um, that really, you know, understand the, the, the connections there. So it, it's all really interesting. And I wonder also if it's a physical thing, you know, with sound there's always vibration and there is a part of the ear that I believe now obviously I'm not an expert that is not to do with actual hearing so whether you can hear something or not hear something it's it's entirely about picking up the vibrations and I wonder whether there's something that uh, we, we, we're not necessarily concentrating on but is just somehow happening to us that gives us this almost sixth sense of, of, of feeling something or another that, that connects us with, you know, why is a C major chord like sitting by a fireside? Or why is A minor, you know, more lonely and desolate? Why is D flat major just like a piece of expensive velvet or something? Or, you know, why is B minor a bit sort of... Um, uh, not lonely but it's it's a little sadness there and and so on so what is it about that 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 you know I, I'm not expecting anybody to have the answers here but it just seems curious that it does ignite the emotions right across the age range you know it, it, yeah I think it's exactly that actually I think it's it's immersive I think once you're in a room with music you don't really have a choice whether to listen to it or not, because it's vibrating every cell in your body. Whereas if you're maybe in an art gallery, you have to look at the right painting, you have to look in the right direction, you have to look at it with the right type of light. And you maybe have to look at the right thing in the painting 
and then consider what it means. Whereas with music, you don't really have a choice. Uh, it will vibrate uh, in, and you have to, you will have a reaction to it whether you want to or not. And I think it's that accessibility and that immediacy that makes music so mm. uh, communicative. Mm. Romani. Um, I did a course once in um, meditation. It was to do with the vibrations of the universe. Um, so I don't know whether maybe something to do with the keys could be vibrating in the same frequency as, as the universe. There are thoughts along those lines. It's interesting, and one of the things I'd love to experiment with is, is trying the, the or reseating an orchestra. So what would it be like if, Eugene, you were suddenly placed uh, you know, by, I, I don't know, a harp player or, or in the middle of the first violins, um, or, Romani, you were placed you know, next door to the timpani or something like that. You know, whether the emotions of what we feel might change then. Um, as a percussion player, I find that my setups are always changing. So for one piece, the marimba might be on the violin side. The next piece, it could be on the cello side. The next piece, it could be at the back of the the the, um, the orchestra, or it could be somewhere else. And, and so I'm used to you know, having all of these uh, different feelings come from different directions. But if I had a choice, I would be on the cello bass side because of that resonance, because my, my frequencies and on so many of the percussion is usually in the, the higher stringed area, so we're almost cancelling ourselves out. So I do like to be on the bass side to, to just get that extra element. So... Um, it's really it's really fascinating what what you're saying. But one of the things, of course, that we've all experienced, and Eugene, you mentioned this with the um, the the uh, consultations you have with your patients, where so much of that is done virtually now, and of course, so many of our music lessons and school lessons and so, so on are done virtually, and this is really creating such a different listening experience. And and you know, you you very eloquently. Uh, talked about that and within the music world at the moment you know a lot of teachers are saying well it's it's fine teaching pupils whom you already know or whom you taught prior to the pandemic and and all of that but they wouldn't necessarily start with new pupils virtually um, because so much of that connection is is you know seeing and feeling their whole posture, their, their, just their dynamic, just how they are face-to-face -face and, and just having that means of creating a, 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 a conversation, asking things that are non-musical and, and getting to know that person. And there isn't quite that same feeling when you're just having this one dimension um, of looking at the screen. And uh, someone said the other day, oh, I just can't wait until I see the back of someone's head. You know, so to go to a concert where you're not just seeing the front of a musician, but you can actually, you know, just just feel that that whole presence of, of a person. So I think possibly all of our listening skills are being tested at the moment one one way or another. Do you think that um, and maybe it's, it exists already a world student doctors orchestra? Um, I might be corrected by my colleagues here, but I don't believe there is a world uh, medical student or student doctors orchestra. There is uh, a European 
medical student orchestra. Um, but I don't believe there is a world um, uh, medical student orchestra. So could there be in the future? I don't see any reason why not. Um, uh, I guess it would just take somebody that was willing to organise it. Um, but um, it certainly, I think the European Medical Students Orchestra has been going for a number of years. Uh, I don't know how many years. Mm. Um, but um, so that is something that could be developed, certainly. Mm. Yeah, interesting, because it must be incredibly inspiring for not just, you know, young uh students going into medicine but but also musicians themselves i mean so so i think one of the things that we're really realizing and one of the things that being able to connect with so many people virtually now is how many connections there are between all of our disciplines and it's really important for us to completely open up um, so that if we want to be, if I want to be a better percussion player, you know, I need to be open to what sports people are doing. Um, you know, if I want to be a better organizer, I need to open up um, what you are all doing or, you know, how we can really tap into to so many disciplines. I think that's really important. So what is, maybe Tim, you can answer, what's the future of the World Doctors Orchestra? The future is, uh, I think, uh, wider audiences. I think um, the idea of lots of doctors playing together in a in a uh, a community is a is a lovely thing. But one has to question why we're doing it and and whether we're actually uh, moving forwards and accomplishing new things. And I think um, we need to use what we have in the World Doctors Orchestra to to be able to reach wider audiences and especially with um, classical music um, because uh, we have this incredibly um, powerful tool that we can use and it, I don't know what it is about the orchestra being full of doctors that draws an audience but we, <laughs> whether it's a novelty or everyone's expecting to see lots of people in white coats <laughs> but it, it usually does draw an audience and I think we're in a especially privileged position to also, as well as raise money for charities, to actually um, uh, do something musically as well, um, whether that be encouraging new compositions um, uh, or new conductors of the future, that kind of thing. Mm. And Eugene, you mentioned you know your story about uh, changing instruments and and a, 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 a very you know poignant part of, of why you had to do that um, but I wonder whether this is an opportunity considering all the fantastic musicians uh, out there from all different types of musical genres um, to come together I mean when you think of the the brilliant jazz players the the brilliant folk musicians Latin players and so on and whether this is something um, that can be brought to the table, as it were, to open up the possibilities of uh, young people seeing that, well, actually, y you know, music is is truly a connector. It is that bridge to um, so, so many uh, different types of music, different societies. Um, and I think this whole COVID situation has meant that we're all going through this together globally. Um, and the WDO is a global organization and it's a, a wonderful 
opportunity to embrace music in its widest possible uh, terms, I suppose. So what you're doing is, is just unbelievably inspiring. It really is. And I suppose this, this conversation is, from my perspective, and I know for, for so many people, is, is a way of saying thank you to you all for just doing the amazing work that you do to make that difference and to keep pushing the boundaries that go, I say go beyond your profession, but it's very much part of your profession because it is all about listening. So we're just uh, maybe beginning to run out of time again, but just before I stop, is there anything you would specifically like to say at this time? So um, I would just... I would just like to say uh, one thing about general practice, because there's been a little bit in the media over the last week about how um, GPs have been seeing less patients or they weren't available over the um, during the lockdown. But that just plain isn't true. Um, uh, practices have been open um, and uh, by the directors that we've had from NHS England, um, we've had to go to remote consultations. So the feel it is very, very different. And um, so for some practices, certainly during the height of the lockdown, if you pitched up at the practice door, they wouldn't have let you in because they would have insisted that you would have to have a virtual consultation first. And that might seem a little bit odd, but if you think about it, it's about balancing the medical need with the risk of exposure to a coronavirus. Um, because um, if you've got a lot of people in, in one place, that particularly sick people, um, then the risk of catching coronavirus um, goes up. So that's why GPs have done the remote consultations. But um, practices have definitely been open and, and GPs have been working exceptionally hard, actually, because, um, because of the demands of what we've had to do and uh, the change in how we've had to work. Um, so certainly GPs have been working very, very hard. And all I would say to anyone that's thinking about, should I contact my GP or shouldn't I? Well, do, certainly do. Um, you know, book an appointment, um, get an electronic consultation or a telephone consultation. GPs are there and we want to help you. Mm, that's such an important message. And actually, in, in my own situation, I have a funny little thing with my thumb at the moment. It's just because I did too much gardening one weekend. And, uh, and I think it's just gone out of joint. And I can absolutely vouch for what you're saying because the speed and the advice and the patience uh, once I made an appointment and getting all of then the, the, uh, the forms to fill out, which was actually very straightforward, and the speed of then getting a text as regards to when a, a video uh, a, appointment could be made was just literally bam, 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 bam absolutely as quick as lightning and I was very pleased and really surprised at that actually because I didn't think it would be so unbelievably quick so certainly from my experience it, it, it's been absolutely terrific so I'm, I'm so pleased what you said there Eugene and, and it's, it's such an important uh, important message yep just wanted to say uh, that we are uh, planning, as we've mentioned, a rescheduling of our concert. Uh, so yes. a cheeky plug <laughs> for this time next year. You see, so I'm, I'm useless <laughs> at plugging anything that I'm involved with, so I'm glad you said it. Yeah, we would, I, as a general note, encourage everyone to keep going to concerts. Um, everything is, uh, is made safe so people can go to concerts in a safe way using the latest evidence and and again, and indeed, we're going to plan to do that in a year's time. 
um, we will be playing um, at Barbican Hall in London uh, and uh, your listeners can find out the latest on our concert that we're doing with you uh, at WDO2020 uh, WDOLondon2020.com Brilliant, thank you Tim You can be my agent now <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm really looking forward to that, I must say. I, I'm absolutely, I just can't wait. And we had to choose repertoire whereby the percussion section would be really busy. The percussion and the double bass sections, they need to be really busy. Indeed. And the violas. <laughs> <laughs> Romany, anything you would like to say? Well, no, Tim, Tim said what I was going to say, but I just would like to thank you on behalf of the committee. Barry's not with us today, but, um, you know, you'll meet him very shortly and we're, we can't wait to perform with you next year. So thank you for agreeing to play with us. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I know our percussion section in the orchestra are so excited about playing with you. <laughs> well, that's, that's very kind of you. And it's just been a, a huge pleasure for me to to chat with you all and just to get a little insight um, into how medicine and music you know complement each other and and what you're doing is absolutely invaluable so um, thank you to you and thank you to all the people um, in the medical profession for what you're doing right this moment it's it's been such a challenging time and we absolutely respect and there's really no words that, that can express our, our gratitude so thank you very much indeed and let's hope for next year full house thank you I would like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast thank you so much for listening see you in my next one